Welcome to the I Belong Here podcast. Please join us on this journey as we will navigate the world meeting fantastic women who are real scientific role models. Together, we wish to inspire the next generation of girls who dream about being scientists. Look out for our male ambassadors too, as they do believe in the representation women deserve and earn in science. Stay tuned for amazing guests, check out the podcast description for credits and acknowledgements, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date with our latest episodes. And she said, don't you change, but I can't help these thoughts up in my brain. Hey guys, welcome to this new episode of the I Belong Here podcast. Today I have with me a really nice guest. Her name is Kiara. Hey Kiara. Hi guys. Nice I'm, I'm so excited to have you here today. Um, um, so before we start to uh, the interview and ask you, because I have a lot of questions uh, to navigate with you today, uh, I'm really curious about your story. I know you move countries uh, to do your actual job. So I want to uh, let the audience know a bit more about you first, and then we can start um, with all the questions that I have for you. <laughs> um, So my guest today, Kiara Sofia Vega Bellido, uh, she's a queer 25-year-old who was born and raised in the small college town of Malaguez, which is right on the west coast of the island of Puerto Rico. She's currently pursuing the goal she established for herself in the 11th grade to earn a PhD in neuroscience. Moreover, she's still figuring out the most effective and healthy treatment for her bipolar disorder type 2 diagnosis with the aim of achieving a consistency that will allow her to forge a meaningful and fulfilling career outside of academia. So, like I said before, I have a lot of questions uh, for you today, and I think um, we will create like a really nice interview between the both of us. So, first of all, I want to ask you about your work, because I have a lot of colleagues that they work in neuroscience, and I'm pretty sure that they're going to get super excited when they hear this interview. Uh, so, you are doing your PhD, and uh, what exactly area of neuroscience do you do? Because I know this is a very extensive field. Yes, one of the things that really attracted me to science in the first place is that it's omni-relevant and that you can study it from any approach, like any interdisciplinary, very interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. And in uh, research in Baylor, usually it's divided by either molecular or cellular science, where we study like in vitro cells, how they change depending on like genetic, genetic um uh, editing or or when exposed to certain drugs. Also, the computational approach, which is modeling um, using deep learning ne uh, neural networks mm. and neural networks. Yeah, which is really cool. We're doing some really great stuff then. Also, human imaging and also systems neuroscience, which is actually um, what my lab is about. So systems neuroscience focuses on studying the nervous system mm -hmm. in terms of ensembles of neurons that process the same type of information. So we mm. focus on a specific circuit that encodes or processes a specific type of information. And we try to study um, how these neurons encode, that these ensembles encode certain information and how that translates into behavior and maybe even cognitive processes, such as learning and memory. Um, so 
uh, after rotating, I rotated quite a lot. Um, <laughs> my behavior, my background was actually in um, in biology. So I have an undergrad. Uh, uh, I have a bachelor's of science degree in biology from the University of Puerto Rico, Mayaguez. And mm. I used every summer I could to do neuroscience research elsewhere in the United States. Mm. And most of it entailed behavioral neuroscience. I also got the pleasure to work um, with optogenetics when it was very new in mm. Stanford in 2014. And that was really cool. Um, but what really, really got to me during my rotations was electrophysiology. Mm. So studying, yeah, using electrophysiology techniques to study the brain is kind of astounding because you're literally, you're literally wiretapping the conversations that neurons have with, with each other. Oh, wow. Yeah. Or that, or you're, or you're tapping into how the neuron is feeling, what it's doing, you know, if it's active or not active, if it's <laughs> saying something, what it's conveying. So it's really cool. Um, I fell in love with it uh, during my sec my first rotation in the Andreas Solius lab, and I ended up in the Daojin G lab, which focuses on learning and memory in mice and rats. Mm. So yeah, the the technique that we use is actually really cool. So we do extracellular uh, recordings. That means that we um, record signals from the cha ionic changes outside of the cells that tell us kind of what this, uh, if the cell is firing or not. And we do this by using microtetroid array, microtetroid uh, drives that we actually build in the lab and we implant in the animal. And depending on what type of uh, process or behavior we want to explore, we uh, manually lower the tetrodes, and tetrodes are just four electrodes uh, twisted and fused into one four-channel um, recording tetrode. And we lower them manually to the region of interest in order to record the signals of the, of the neurons while the animal is performing a task so the cool thing about this is that we can watch what's going on in the brain in vivo wow. inside any yeah any region that we can um you know get the tetrads in and since we're studying learning and memory the region that we're most interested in and the the one that my project focuses on is the hippocampus hmm. so the hippocampus is this uh c C-shaped subcortical structure that's been conserved throughout um, mamma mammalian evolution. So um, it's very well conserved in mice, and we can see that a lot of the activity patterns that we see in rodents, we can see it in humans who do have electrodes uh, implanted in their brain, the hippocampus. So that's pretty cool. And it, we know for sure there actually the literature is is exhausting. <laughs> Yeah, uh, exhausting showing that the hippocampus is our memory apparatus. It's mm. key in forming it for us to be able to form new memories and also in order to like spatially navigate our environment. So it's a super important um, structure in terms of information processing and also information storing. Um, in our case, in my case actually, I get to study the most interesting type of memory, I think it's called, we call it episodic memory. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and this is actually one of the types of memory that that um, 
that deals with autobiographical information. And what that means is that it, it's a memory about a personal unique experience to you. So there are two types of declarative uh, memory. And what this means is that it's explicit that you consciously have to make an effort to remember, to remember that information. And uh, it divides into uh, the two types of, of memory that form our autobio our, uh, our self image, kind of like our autobiographical image of ourselves. And this, these two types are episodic memory and semantic memory. So episodic memory deals with with the, you, the experiences that are only unique to you. So let's say, you know, your wedding date, you and your husband know your wedding date and it's the same for him as it is for you. Mm. And that would be part of semantic memory because, mm. but it's part of your history. You still yeah. need it as, as a kind of like conceptual framework. Mm. However, your experience of your wedding, of your kiss, of your, your, how you felt when you looked into your husband's eyes, that's episodic memory. That's completely unique to you. And that's why I think it's like one of the most interesting ones to mm -hmm. think in terms of like hum how human psychology and like self image is built. It's completely important. If you don't yeah. have that type, it's, it's a type of, of information that we use to learn and to grow and to change, you know, from our experiences and also it shapes who we are. So that's why I think it's the coolest one. Wow. Um, yeah, so I get to study that that type of memory in mice. And wow. um, yeah, no, no, we're getting to the cool part. So that's the, that's the, the neuropsychological aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And the nitty gritty electrophysiological um, aspect of it is that we target the hippocampus particularly because it has these cells that we call place cells. Mm. And yeah. And what's amazing about these cells is that usually they're silent. When an, however, when an animal starts to explore a new place, you start to see that some neurons start to fire a lot when the animal is, is in a specific place. And then it sort of establishes a firing pattern that it only fires when it's in that position. Mm -hmm. And we have, yeah, and after analyzing a lot of well recordings actually it started in rabbits and yeah in rabbits we found that these cells were actually encoding contextual information were actually encoding the position of the animal in space and it's really amazing to find cells that their activity correlates so robustly with an animal's behavior and how we tie this to episodic memory is that one of one of the uh, important things about this type of memory is where it happened. What's the context, mm -hmm. right? Like, where were you when I don't know you saw your your crush, your first crush, or <laughs> where you saw that person that you wanted to avoid, or where you had a horrible experience? Where did it happen? Well, we know that these cells are encoding position and context. So we know that these cells have to be involved in some way in episodic memory. And we also know that it's that if you don't have a hippocampus, you won't be able to form this types of memory. So we have all these clues pointing to, okay, these cells, if we record from them, we might be able to understand mechanisms about how episodic memory is encoded in these cells, right? Mm -hmm. 
because they're part of, of the memory itself. And so, so what we mostly focus on first is making sure that we can, we can track place cells since we yeah. only have a limited range with the tetrodes of recording uh, mm -hmm. sites. We only have like some, a couple 20 to 40 cells, depending on whether you're doing it in mice and or rats and 20 to 40 cells per tetrode and we have eight tetrodes and sometimes it's not in the right position and one of the hardest things honestly about this technique is that when you're trying to lower the tetrodes into the hippocampus which is you know beneath the neocortex so you yeah. have to go you have to manually go down you are going in blind the mm. only thing that's telling you where you are in the brain is that it's recording signals and as you go down the signals change because you're in a different region of the brain Ooh, so the more <laughs> the more experience you get doing that honestly for me it it was like an epiphany to be able to recognize <laughs> no wait i am uh, i am in white matter right now hmm. right now i am in uh orients and right now i am this in the ca1 pyramidal cellular which is my target region and you can tell that just by looking at the signals that you're recording as the tetrode is moving. And you can also, we have this feature that you can hear the cells firing. And they also have, uh, since they have different firing patterns, they have different, uh, you know, there's a different um, kind of like sound, kind of pattern of sound with each layer. And that's how you blindly try to find the hippocampus. Wow. And, yeah, in these types of, of experiments. Hmm. So once we have the drive made, we have it implanted, we have lowered the tetrodes and found the hippocampus, and we're ready to record some place cells and find out um, how the animal is encoding uh, its environment, how it's forming a cognitive map of, where, of a novel environment. Hmm. We train the animal so that we, so that the cells have time to absorb all of the multi-sensory information, integrate it, and then also tuned to their preferred location yeah. and that preferred location we call it a place field hmm. one of the coolest things about this is that after you have the data you can actually decode it and if you have enough place cells just just looking at the firing patterns you can see where the animal was in time Ooh. in the track so you can map the position nice, of the yeah. animal just looking at the firing patterns uh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, of these neurons, which is just amazing. So, wow. Yeah, I, I know it's a lot of information. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I wish people could see me right now because I've been with my eyes super open or listening to this thing. Uh, first of all, it sounds super complicated. Um, so I'm fascinated by um, not only the techniques that you handle, but the complexity but also the translation of what you are studying, you know, because it's so important. Like, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the brain is, well, it's really unknown. We know a lot of things about it, but at the same time, uh, we, we don't know, I will say, maybe we don't know even the 20%, maybe that's an exaggeration even, I don't really know. <laughs> Way Lower. down, yeah, 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 wow. Uh, I remember... Okay, so yeah, you said in the beginning in the intro, I wanted, I knew that I wanted to do a PhD in neuroscience as the 11th yeah. grade because um, 
I had the pleasure of going to this boarding school that specialized in math and science. So they always mm. had really cool stuff going on. And one time they had, uh, they put on a neuroscience fair. And what, what happened was that this um, Dr. Gregory Quark's lab. So this guy, he is uh, actually a really well-known researcher in the, um, uh, in the place cell and mm -hmm. fear conditioning field. Mm. And uh, he, he was a researcher in Recinto de Ciencias Médicas in San Juan in Puerto Rico at the time. Mm -hmm. He would bring from his lab, and uh, all of his lab members, they would do this outreach and put on a neuroscience fair and show different types of neuroscience research, like little vignettes. So oh, one would nice. be EEG, the other would, teach, would show you a little bit about how we, uh, we stain cells and see how their structures change. If you knock out a gene, knock it in, all that. Mm -hmm. So like you got all, you know, it was an amazing experience. And after that, I was like, yeah, if this is I need to available, do this. <laughs> like this is what I want to do for sure. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and the, also the idea, the, I, I have been interested in the nervous system since sixth grade because that's the first time I was introduced to it. And I was just perpetually kind of like fascinated by the idea of, so this biological system, this bundle of tissue and cells is what makes a person a person? It's what, <laughs> you know, it's what, it's what makes me, me, my yeah. thoughts and feelings and dreams and behavior, it's really controlled by a system yeah. that we have access to that we know. So yeah, no, no, I agree. You know, when you were going to these neuroscience fairs, you started to become interested about the topic. Um, and I know that uh, you were born and raised in Puerto Rico. Um, but like me, you move countries uh, to pursue at least this, this part of your career, which is your PhD. So I would like to ask you to share with us, how was this transition? I know that you moved because of your neuroscience passion, but... Um, I'm really interesting to showcase um, real role models like yourself, you know, like you move countries for a, pursuing a passion or something. And I'm really interested to know your point of view about that. What were your goals? Um, how did you felt when you arrived to the States? Um, you know, a bit of your, your story and your trajectory to, to simplify the question. <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. I will be... I will make a conscious effort to be concise. Okay. But this is, this is honestly, I'm gonna, I think this is where the story is interesting because my case is very, very weird. I okay. Think, like compared to other people. So I was born to two academics. Okay. One with a PhD in educational psychology and the other one with a PhD in business administration and economics. Ooh, so okay. from an early age, I knew I spent days in the university. They were both professors. You know, I spent my days with academics, so I knew all about academia. And it was mm. kind of like very, uh, something that was very familiar to me mm -hmm. from an early age. And I know that that's not like usually it takes, you know, like a counselor or some sort of orientation for people to learn about PhDs. Yeah. You know, uh, there's uh, especially like, a lot of the kids in public schools, they miss out on graduate 
school or, or graduate studies because they just simply don't know or or weren't introduced to or weren't like encouraged to engage with it but i from a very early age that was kind of what was done you know it was um it it seemed for me like natural because that's what my parents did and that's mm -hmm. what their friends did but um from the beginning you know i always felt that i always felt a lot of intellectual freedom Mm -hmm. uh, our parents parents raised us, uh, me and my brother, in a way that they allowed us to kind of observe. This is what is out there. These okay. are the religions. For example, they. Um, I think my father is like a lapsed Christian or whatever, but they would tell us these are the religions available. You learn about them. You decide what yeah. makes sense to you. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that happened in sixth grade in particular. I usually. Before that, I wanted to be a zoologist. After that, I was very interested in the in the human nervous system in particular, and then everything, uh, um, everything I did was kind of to get more experience to see what I what were my options to study the human nervous system. Yeah. So that's why I got into that boarding school. We had to take a entrance exam um, to get to Croem, uh, which specialized in math and and science so that I could also have more, you know, options and opportunities mm -hmm. to explore that. Yeah. And that's where I found out about neuroscience as a PhD. Hmm. And that's what kind of like led me. It was kind of like my horizon for the whole of undergrad, mm -hmm. which was um, very difficult because uh, ever since I turned 16, I started uh, exhibiting uh, uh, symptoms of severe depression. Okay. Yeah, but it went untreated because I was still thriving academically. I still uh, like had, it wasn't that I couldn't get out of bed. I was just sometimes very lonely, very sad, very low. And I had experienced anhedonia too. Mm -hmm. So I, sh I remember that I experienced those symptoms as early as that. But then in undergrad, everything was fine. Um, and like all, everything I did, it was working towards eventually going to a PhD in neuroscience. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's why I applied to internships and did like undergrad research, just, you know, what I was getting into that led to me becoming severely, like truly dysfunctionally depressed after graduating from mm. undergraduate. And even, and I remember on my graduation day, we were all really happy because I had gotten like highest honors and. Uh, um, you know, graduation is always supposed to be like a time of celebration. I mm. had a breakdown, mm. a nervous breakdown. And my mother, um, thankfully, I have a super supportive family. We decided that I was going to take a gap year in order to get some therapy because I really okay. needed it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So and during that gap year, I was partially hospitalized mm -hmm. and um, was treated for a major depressive disorder. Mm. Um, anyway, I was fine enough that I applied to grad school and finally, yay, the PhD that I wanted got in, <laughs> uh, Baylor locked me down with the interviews and the research that they had. I just loved the faculty so much and the research I was in a ward. I couldn't see myself anywhere else. I also yeah. felt yeah. that they had a really good, um, um, program in the sense that they have your back, like they're very pro students. And the the medical and mental health care services were top notch. That's amazing. Like they made they made it 
clear that that was something that that was really important to them because mm -hmm. they recognize that there's a pandemic in academ academia. It is. Of, yes, of like higher incidence of depression and anxiety disorders and also of substance use in academics. Yeah. But it's still a stigma. I think. Yeah, and the, and it's just and it's so weird because I always feel academics are open-minded people and that we can talk about anything, you know. Sometimes but not, we, <laughs> but really no. Yeah, no. exactly. And and I think uh, that's something that that uh, my first year, even though I felt like I was like floating in a dream because I was finally just taking classes that focused on neuroscience. I was yeah. doing rotations and things and learning about techniques I had never imagined i saw an mri of my own brain you get tingles <laughs> inside you know like yeah. seeing your own you're like whoa wow this is well you know, that's um, me mm -hmm. yeah i mean like i said before it it, it is clear that uh, your passion for neuroscience comes through and i think uh again correct me if i'm wrong but i think this was one of the things that drive you to keep overcoming yourself and keep Definitely. getting better, seeking therapy, knowing yeah. that the mental health program was top notch. I think that gave you motivation, but you know, all these things that you were describing about, I think this is something that, well, first of all, I think it takes an amazing level of courage to speak about those things because I don't think it makes it easier. I just think this makes it clear and more vocal. And one of the things that I want to, you know, uh, mm -hmm. go for it with this podcast is, is to show the reality of, of uh, not only science per se but also things that people encounter and that they get better and like you they found the motivation that keep them moving forward because I think especially with these things around mental health people don't talk about them and still there is a certain degree of reaction like oh mm, I'm I don't not want I don't want yeah, exactly Competency yeah. is uh, immediately on judgment. Yeah, like judgment. That's, yeah, sorry, that's the word that I was looking for. <laughs> like there is a certain reaction of people judge you when you talk about mental health issues or imposter syndrome or things like that. And I think that makes it harder to accept yourself because in those places where you suffer from depression or other things, you are vulnerable already and perhaps you don't like yourself that much. So you kind of need support from the outside of people that they overcome it or example, amazing examples like you, like now I hear you talking about your research and you are so happy about it. You know all these things, you are so knowledgeable, but also I can see that you are making a difference in your field, but you had all this massive background and all these experiences, you know, like as a backpack with you and probably they shape you and they make you change. I think it takes a lot of courage to, to, to say these things. And thank you so much for sharing it with us. Uh, I think you are super brave. And uh, I am also so sorry that you had to go through all of that. I know that is part of you and that it shaped you. And now you are testifying and you are leading with the example, you know? So I think that's great, but it doesn't mean that it wasn't a challenge. So, you know, when you put all of this in one bag, th that was obviously a challenge for yourself, right? So how, in what point do you took all those challenges and, and you decided to keep going? Because when you are at those stages, whereas if it's depression or bipolar disorder or something like that, when you are in those stages, you really don't know and you don't believe that you are going to move forward. You feel stuck and you don't really know 
uh, how long am I going to be like this? Am I losing time? Am I not pursuing my career correctly? I'm not talking only about science. I'm talking about any other motivation that you might have in life. This podcast mm -hmm. is about science, but it might be other type of job. Um, so how did you took all of that or in what point you knew that you were moving forward, even if it was slowly? Um, yeah, like how, how did you do that? <laughs> no, yeah, no, that's actually, it's, a, you got me, uh, I, so I kept postponing this talk because I didn't feel like I had gotten to a place where I could really, really give a full story mm -hmm. because I felt stuck still. Yeah. I felt very lost um, very recently, actually. Mm. And so after I joined my lab, you know, it's very novel. What we're doing is really cool. I'm learning amazing techniques, mm. being able, you know, what... <laughs> the rush that you get when you complete a four hour surgery on an implanted mouse with a drive that you built under a microscope, a yeah. little things compared to that. And also yeah. once you can recognize where you are in the brain just by listening to the neuron, you know, there the moments are rewarding, rewarding and gratifying beyond yeah. words. But I found myself, um, I found myself kind of still unfulfilled in the lab mm -hmm. in the sense that the, the techniques that we, that we do are very tedious. Yeah. So building a drive, it can take two, uh, sorry, three days to one week. Mm. Then preparing for surgery, um, usually if it doesn't work out, like you might lose a month mm, and then wow. make a drive. And then you have to wait until the surgery, uh, you know, the animal is okay. And then you have to first do troubleshooting experiments to get preliminary data. And then again, do the experiments well and hope, and then do data analysis. And all of that takes years, yeah. right? Fourth year. And I found myself more and more miserable the time that I spent in the lab doing the basic research mm. and more and more willing to become part of extracurricular activities uh, like outreach. So, yep. yeah. So I do a lot of outreach. One of my favorite things is actually called Saturday Morning Science. So oh, we that devote, sounds cute. <laughs> yeah, it, it's great. So um, the, we uh, have some collaborations with some of the uh, middle schools here, middle schools and high schools. And we devote uh, Saturday mornings talking to 6th to 10th, 11th readers about mm -hmm. STEM topics and talking about trajectory and what helped us and how they can learn and all that. And to see them engage, you know, it's something else. But what I really, what I saw that I really liked was that I was learning more about people through these interactions. You do, I was learning yes. than I was just doing my mouse thing. Which yeah. even though uh, it was fascinating and you know that I, you know, I love it and that it, I think it's a fundamental question that should be answered and deserves the effort. I mm -hmm. found myself um, kind of spiraling very, very often. Mm -hmm. And this meant the worst depressive episodes of my life. And the thing about depression is that the more depressive episodes you go through, 
the more likely you are to get depressed in the future. Yeah. If you don't change your lifestyle radically. Yeah. It's very hard to change habits because to change habits when you've dealt, been doing the same thing for your depression for a long time. Mm -hmm. And during this time, I also found out or at least we reassessed my diagnosis. This is another thing about psychiatry and psychology that is not great. It's that it's a lot of trial and error. Yeah. Because there's um, so many factors that play into what a per- how a person feels, thinks, behaves. Yeah, and there's complex. only so much information that you convey through a session yeah. and then so much that the person can do. And then through medication, it's definitely trial and error because we don't know usually how the individual is going to respond and then you have to wait. So, uh, you know, that is, I learned a lot through all of the therapy that I went through. And also I was learning a lot through the interactions that I was having with people. And also I learned a lot being miserable doing electrophysiology basic research in my lab and i knew after my first year i did not want a career in academia but i then i was thinking what am i gonna do this is what i thought i wanted to do for the rest of my life since 11th grade what do i do i'm lost i'm probably gonna fail out you know i had no motivation i could not find it outside or inside Mm -hmm. and i started feeling anxiety for the first time in my life Mm. Uh, I'm not an anxious person, so I really commend those people who are because anxiety is one of the worst things I've ever gone through. It, it is, yeah. It's the worst. A panic attack, not being able to move because you're immobilized mm. because of your anxiety, that, or or you're hyperventilating. You know, I, I it's so physiologically strong. I had I had never. When I get depressed, I simply just go to sleep forever. But anxiety is like emotionally painful. It's different, yeah. I went through all that. I still, when I came out, I was optimistic. I was like, yes, I'm going to do this. I can finish this PhD and then I'll just figure it out. I'll do science communication. I love to write, so I'll do that. And uh, uh, something that I really like, uh, I didn't like about academia is that you narrow your focus more and more and more. The more you advance in in your track. And what I like is being able to try everything, yeah. you know, being a polymath, being um, exposed to everything in, yeah. in, in the field. But so, I think you, you said something really important and it's that, uh, and to be honest, this is something that still, I mean, I started my scientific career, I think in 2012 mm-hmm. and now I'm, I'm senior postdoc in my lab. And sometimes this is, um, I still struggle with this. Um, I still struggle to understand that I am not my job and Uh that there are other things outside my job. And I really struggle about this. Like I love my job. Yeah. I'm I'm a, I want to be an academic. I want to continue in academia and uh, I know, I know where I'm getting myself (laughs) into, Mm -hmm. but uh, I know that's my destiny if I can call it that way. So that's why I want to pursue that path because I love teaching. I love having students and, and continuing my research. Um, but I still struggle to to stop working uh, and, and to stop thinking about my job and about doing things. So I think you said something really important, which is 
you know, I know you had all these challenges and I, again, I'm going to repeat myself. You are super brave. Just talking about them is already brave, but overcoming them is, it takes so much courage to pick yourself the up. Hardest. It's the hardest. Um, and to trust in yourself when you trust yourself the least, it's super difficult to, to pick yourself up and overcome those things. Honestly, like I have so much respect for you for everything. And I hope that the people who listens to this episode realize how hard and how much of information we are condensing in a single episode. I don't know how long we have been talking already, but I don't, that's not the point. Like it's really, really difficult. So I, I really admire you a lot for everything that you have overcome. Um, so it's really um, like, how, how, what's what's the word that I'm looking for? It's really visionary, if that makes sense, to to dedicate yourself to other things that are not your job. Because I think that's perhaps a point that that you found yourself starting to be more optimistic, happier. And this is something that is happening to me with the podcast. You know, I'm meeting all these fantastic women that, like you, you know, like you guys told me all these amazing things that you do, all this amazing work that you do. And it's helping me so much as well to shape, uh, for example, my opinion about overworking, um, you know, stigma around female academics. So it's super important, the things that you said. And I wanted to ask you as well, do you think this has been more challenging as a female in academia? Because this podcast is also about woman in STEM, you know, mm -hmm. and, and sometimes I find, I find things more challenging than my male colleagues just because of our gender, which I think is outrageous. And that's one of the things that I'm going to keep working hard to change that perception Definitely. because your gender should not condition anything, any aspect about your life. But did you felt something different because you, you were, you are a female academic? Um, and that, in that sense, again, I'm a weird case because I've never, never felt like my gender hindered me in any way. Okay. I've always, it's always been my lack of, I think, that struggle that I have finding meaning in things yeah. because it meant that the things that for I was raised by two very compassionate, very wonderful, kind, loving people. Mm. So I knew that I had things that I valued. Yeah. But then when you get obsessed with an ideology that takes away that value, mm. and then you're also predisposed to states that take away pleasure from the things that have value, yeah. and it kind of compounds your, you just take everything for granted. Yes. So, for example, the things you see me, you know, I can talk for hours about what I do. Hmm. But um, honestly, I didn't give any. I didn't care. Hmm. But in those days, in those states, you rather you, don't. you don't, yeah, you can't do. You you don't. And it's hard. If I love every time I talk to my PI, I, I love him so much. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's Chinese. Hmm. And um, uh, so most of my colleagues are Chinese as well. And hmm. I've learned a lot of, about them and I admire them so much because they, you know, their work ethic is amazing. And also their resilience hmm. and also sense of community. And they, at least at least the ones in my lab, are just very kind and, and honest, hmm. you know, genuine people. So they're wonderful. But when I, I, th I obviously have to talk to him, hey, um, I'm not meeting my deadlines because... 
I am going through this and I need to work through this. And I know that even though he can't, he hasn't gone through that. He, mm. ha he just hasn't had that experience. He is, he tries to, he, I don't, I, I am lucky because he tries to empathize and he says, I think you should prioritize your, your mental health, you know? Well, that's amazing. I not not super, a lot of PIs do that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, they would be, no, no, you know, uh, this isn't for you. You shouldn't try again. No, yeah. he would be, you tell me how I can help you so that you can continue your progress. Because mm -hmm. if you want to do this PhD, then you're going to need help. You need and to be well. The, yeah. You need to be well. And that is something that I wish everybody who struggles with mental, mental health has is a support system and i don't think that really exists for a lot of people mm. and especially in academia there's not an infrastructure of support for people who are suffering mental illness yeah i feel and especially because one it's really not talked about mm. there isn't like a a mental literacy like promoting mental literacy is not a thing that most programs do no people don't know about the resources that are available to them in order to seek support and they also think that it's normal to prioritize work over yeah uh, i think there is health. a culture of um, yeah the culture if, if you are over worked and burned out then you're, think you're fine yeah, you exactly. are doing you are doing fine. good yeah 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 Yeah, and I think it's actually hurting not only academics, but the work that academics, academics do, because we don't do our best work when we are in a mediocre, when we feel mediocre, right? No. Or, exactly, or when we're burnt out. Hmm. So anyway, that's one of the things that I started thinking about, like, wow, you know, I thought academia was like this haven of really intellectually <laughs> open-minded smart people who live you know a very rich life or aren't just obsessed with grant writing or and i thought that pis actually did a lot of re, you know a lot of like wet lab and like mm. hands-on stuff but they don't mm. and i i remember you know my pa talks to me about this all the time that that's one of the things that he didn't if he'd known that as a scientist he wouldn't get to do the science he wanted to do yeah he's not so sure he would have been a pi yeah so you know realizing all these things also just trying also feeling awful because i i had said to my i had committed to this goal that i had since 11th grade basically and then feeling like i was so lost like i didn't have it in me like i didn't want to do it like you know i felt the worst it's the lowest self-esteem i've ever had and um uh that i honestly at this like went through a lot of personal turmoil i separated from a four year long relationship which really was just bad i mean yeah. it was just bad for me and in general i was already going through a tough time yeah so i had to like seriously sit down and have a difficult difficult very painful conversation with myself about why are you making your life miserable yeah. why are you you know yeah but i think i also think you need to be lost to find yourself if that makes any sense i think you need no. to I think you need to be lost in those kind of scenarios, if that makes sense, to and then have the courage to pick you up. Exactly. Um, and like I said, I think it's amazing everything that that you just done. And 
even if you haven't experienced, um, you know, a condition because of your gender, um, because that's my case as well. I've been in other jobs, not my actual one, but I've been in other jobs that my opinions were less important because of my gender or, you know, like um, male dominant academic positions. um, They choose, Mm -hmm. um, they will just consider you less because of your gender. So, I know you haven't experienced anything like that, then, but I know that um, a lot of colleagues don't don't run the same fortune, you know. Um, yeah. And even with mental health, you know, yeah. sometimes because of women, we are expected more to emotional. Do, yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah, or you are just emotional, or because we we have a lot of society societal expectations about how yeah. we have to look, how we have to think. We need to be strong, but if you are too strong, you are bossy. Um, you need to be you know compassionate but if you are too much then you are too emotional so I think um, even Mm -hmm. if you haven't experienced that per se I think you are setting out also a fantastic example for female scientists that they might already been through what you've been through or they're starting to feel these things and they are scared about continuing their scientific (laughs) career Um, so that's why I wanted to have you in in this episode as well because I think it's so important to set out this example for either scientists, female scientists that are already in the game or, or generations that are thinking about mm-hmm. going into STEM careers, right? Yeah, I, actually, I, I, something that I, I would love for your listeners to mm. think about, especially, it really, uh, I know co- colleagues who have left academia yeah. because of how they were treated. Yeah. You know? Like their lab was just a completely toxic environment for them. It specifically targeted, like the, the boss specifically targeted the females in the lab oh. and was abusive and like just awful, awful stuff that shouldn't happen. And that's another thing about academic culture is that mentor, you know, PIs aren't trained to be mentors. And that's no. something that should change. I, think. I, I Yes, totally. Mm-hmm. I completely agree with you. I want to be a PI and I'm thinking how much I'm going to invest with my future students about mentoring them well, you know, Mm -hmm. besides of doing the science, you know, I want to mentor them well. That's one of the reasons why I want to be a PI, because I think we need more PIs in academia that they really take care about their students and that they, they make them feel safe and happy regardless of have you bring me this paper? Have you met this Mm -hmm. deadline? Are, Are you getting me these results? I mean, sometimes, Yes, that is important. It's part of our lives. We are academics, we are scientists, but sometimes keeping your people well and, and, and you know, exercising a good mentorship is as equal as um, this paper is going to come out next month. You know what I'm trying to say? Yes, definitely. And it makes me think, so uh, it makes me think about this report I, I read recently mm-hmm. that they surveyed researchers about what they thought about academic culture currently. And they they said that one of the things that they wish, you know, would change about academic culture is one that, you know, mentors actually want to mentor, not yeah. just not just uh, delegate, you know, yeah. their projects to people and have laborers, you know, like just toil for them so that they can, I don't know, get as many papers published. Oh, also that publisher parish culture. I know. Is it the norm? <laughs> Why is it the norm? I have no, no I have idea. No idea. The, and there's also so many prejudices in, uh, you know, 
I like I told you when I came to academia, uh, academia even having had like internship experiences and all that I still came with an idealized version and then yes. seeing what it, how it was it was like wow well, you know there are a lot of things that could be improved and by improving uh, you know the culture we can improve our output and also yeah. our I think like our usefulness in society because we're also super inaccessible to the yeah. public hmm. then yeah and I have a lot of thoughts on that but something that I wanted to talk to the people who are who are struggling really bad, like are having a hard time either because you're a woman and you're in a toxic environment or because of your mental health or because you're you're trying to grab, to come to terms with the fact that maybe you made a mistake and this wasn't really what you wanted to do. Yeah. That it's okay. Mm. Yeah, and it's so that, I mean, uh, it, it shouldn't be part of the culture that, that, you know, just, thinking through things through and growing and learning about yourself and then making decisions based on how, what you learn about yourself, it shouldn't be punished or stigmatized. No. And I, I had a lot of self stigma because of it. You know, I felt like, well, great. I'll just go down in history as the worst grad student ever. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't like I was like horrible. <laughs> I, I'm like, sure you were. I wasn't even like that bad. <laughs> Yeah, even that bad, but you know, you, you have these standards for yourself that you're not meeting and then you're failing and yeah. you know, just yourself and you're disappointing others and uh, you get Drama. stuck also just in a rut, just thinking about that. Yeah. It's like a podcast that it's only a oh, negative self-talk. Yeah. The worst and podcast ever. <laughs> exactly. So, so I, I, you know, the best thing I did was actually, okay, what are my options? I do not want to spend more than three years right now at, at, at the pace that I'm going because I've had so many setbacks with the pandemic, yeah. with the LOA, oh, with me being miserable, whatever, with the breakup, which broke me, whatever. Yeah. I need to really think about what do I want to do? Because I know I'm not happy doing this. Yeah. What is it that I want to do? Well, I love talking to people. I love getting to know people. I already have... Uh, like on the side, I read all about the neurobiology of cognition, human cognition and emotions and obviously mental illness since that's mm. just my life. So it's something that I think about all the time. And yeah. it's something that something that I really enjoy is being able to talk to people. And, the, and when I see that my experience can actually give them something that they can use and help that's it for me. You know, right, that's yes. something that really, it lights me up. Mm. And I can always, I can always read about a uh, place cell research if I want. Yes. Uh, and I can read <laughs> about learning a memory in mice and Alzheimer's yeah. disease and everything. But I really wanted the, I, I really had to think about, okay, what you really want to study is people. Yes. What you really want to work with is people. People, yes. That's, when you when you see yourself happy you know when you see yourself really kind of thriving is talking to people yes so i look at my options and i talk to my pi and we decided that it was probably like the best for my mental health hmm. to uh do a master's which just means that the requirements are just uh less than than a phd a master's hmm. in neuroscience so that I can do a PhD in clinical psychology, in psychology and become a therapist, which mm. um, I think, honestly, one, every 
it was the first time that I start, started to kind of accept it because you don't want to let go. You don't want to let go of, of, course. of the goal. Oh, yeah, yeah exactly. You don't want to let go of that person that you, you're you not really, all, you, but after all you've been through, you're not really that person anymore. Yes. But you, you don't want to let go because you, you're yeah. always going to want to overachieve and do every goal that you set out to. But exactly. sometimes yeah. you have to, to come to terms to the fact, with the fact that it, it's not what you thought and you made a mistake. Yeah, and but I think that's also really important to acknowledge and I talk about this with many of the guests uh, from this podcast it's you need to follow your path not others path and if it changes during your journey then that's absolutely fine because I'm I'm not the same person as when I left Spain and I'm pretty sure I'm not the same person that I'm going to be in three years Um, because well things happen things happen to you you evolve you grow and that's part of human condition I think as well so it's so important to to follow your path and and I agree with what you said earlier like academia needs more people that they want to be mentors Um, and this happens like in in any job you know like if if and this is something that I tell my students as well if you don't want to be a professor or working in an academic environment, you want to be a pharmacist, mm-hmm. uh, you want to work in industry, you want to work in science communication, do it. But spend some time having that conversation with yourself, like you said as well, and decide what's your path, not your friends or your PIs for you yes. or something like that, you know? And it's yes. okay if, if that changes. And I think for females, that's also really important because of all so the expectations hard. that we have, um like oh you quit therefore you are blah i'm not gonna even think i'm not gonna think about female (laughs) yeah i'm not gonna think about an objective because i i I have no energy for it um but yeah like so it's it's just i blows my mind um all the things that you are telling to us uh i'm really enjoying and i'm really learning about everything that you've been through and all the fantastic example that you are setting um so if I take this, uh, you know, all these things that we have been talking about this in your episode, in your session, um, and you had the next generation of female scientists in front of you that they want to get into STEM jobs, but perhaps they don't know what's their path for them. If you had them in front of you, what would you tell them to encourage them to this next generation of female scientists to get into STEM jobs? I have a, bu- I have a bullet points in my head. Yes. It's important to remember that your journey is unique to mm-hmm. you. Uh, definitely, what you said. I just want to reiterate that because a, a lot of um, education and places is based on competition, and especially when women in women when they are faced with expectations that men don't have to deal with. No. It's it's even worse because we compare ourselves to other women instead of instead of forming more of a collaborative you know um dynamic yeah. and i feel like if we were more collaborative in every sense in academia everywhere then i it would be it would everything would be better for everyone yes. not only not only in terms of support but i mean in terms of the output of whatever we're doing the yeah. intellectual capital etc Remember that your journey is unique, so you need to really spend time with yourself. Learn to spend time with yourself and yep. not make your life about one thing. Like you said, you 
your life is your work isn't your life even though you might be working with something super fascinating and it really you're obsessed with it they the human experience is not limited to that yeah and you're certainly missing out if <laughs> if you make it that um in order to make i feel to do your best you have to take care of yourself so remember that your journey is unique so find what's best for you not what's best for others and whatever how, how everybody else is doing don't even think about that if anything yeah. you know take advice from people that you admire that have you know have been able to accomplish things or have struggled through things mm -hmm. that you are struggling with then then you can compare a little bit and you can take <laughs> advice and then that will help you because their experience, they've experienced it for you in, in a sense. But make sure that you prioritize your well-being over everything because that will pretty much determine how the rest of your life goes in terms of relationships, in terms mm -hmm. of work, in terms of whether you feel content or not. Also, science, um, if you're thinking about going into STEM, you need to do your research. Yeah. And by doing your research, I mean, get, try to get as many opportunities to do actual research as possible. Yeah. You need to, you need to do it. You need uh, to don't try, mind. yeah. Yeah, you, you need to be exposed to that. And you also need to enter, I feel like, enter with an open mind to STEM because if you, work in academia to get a phd there's a lot of other things that you can do as well mm -hmm. so first make sure that that's something that you want to commit to for at least four to eight years of your life mm -hmm. depending what happens you don't because you don't you can't predict what happens no so please just like try to learn as much as possible do your research um so that, so that you're sure uh always take care of, care of your mental health it's part it's just part of your health. Like, yes, don't see it as, yes. as separate from your physical health. Mm. And also have a support network. Yeah. Uh, I think for me, that's been something that I took for granted just because my parents are wonderful people and my friends and family have just been really great. And my PI is also like a extraordinary superhuman. So <laughs> you need to find people to support you wherever you are, because at times, even if you were a person of a growth mindset and very resilient and independent, like I think myself to be, sometimes I need somebody else to help me get out of it. Indeed, sometimes yeah. I need somebody else to remind me who I am. Yeah. To, you know, to because you, because sometimes when you're struggling and you're in a low or hypomanic, you'll forget yourself. Yeah. You forget yourself. It's part yes. of it. You just get distorted. Your um, self-image hmm. uh, and image everything. of everything yeah. is distorted. Mm. Yes. So it you need to have a, a, a support uh, network. I think, think that's super important. And also try to destigmatize as yes. much as you can. Yes. And the best way to do that is by educating yourself. Because... Hmm. I think stigma is symptomatic of ignorance and it prejudice. Is. Yeah. And prejudice. Yes. And yes. sometimes that's very hard to overcome. But if you want to be, uh, I think if you're going to be a true, truly great scientist, 
you need to be curious, open-minded, and also just willing, willing to change your mind. Exactly. Well, yeah. these are amazing uh, advice. I'm sorry, I talked so much. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, 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 uh, they are amazing, all of them together. I think they were interconnected, so I wanted to let you finish your bullet points. <laughs> I think they are yeah. amazing. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that not only the next generation of female scientists, but the, the other people who, who are listening to your episode, they are going to get super inspired about it. Um, I'm so thankful that you share everything of this uh, with us today. And it was a pleasure to have you here and an honor to listen to your story and, and to the challenges and, and how much of a strong person have you become. So I hope that you are really proud of yourself uh, because you should be. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of you and I only met you today. <laughs> So this is, is, is great and I love to have you here uh, and thank you. Thank you so much for this amazing interview. Thank you so much for giving me the space to, to talk about my story. It helps me process things because, and also, you know, just the hope that anybody there resonates with anything I said and to spare them yeah. a little bit of the suffering that I made myself go through because you don't really have to go through that. It's, <laughs> You really don't. Yeah. Uh, I promise you, you can. Um, if I can just say one thing to girls, self-advocate. Yeah. Very important. Go look for, for it. Women, look, look for women who are where you want to be. Yeah. Ask them for advice. Yeah. Ask them for direction. Make them your friends. Make them your mentors. Yeah. We have to be together to like really change, exactly. change things in yes. academia. To really fill the gap, we're going to have to work together. Exactly. And, um yeah if reach out if you need anything i'm on all platforms so and always willing to listen to anybody's story or or support them or point them to resources that have been important or like really useful to me if you need anything just well you are a fantastic inspiration tiara um reach out to her social media guys uh she's gonna be she has been tagged in the tweet uh, sharing this episode. So just reach out to her if you have more questions. Um, and yeah, uh, you are setting out a fantastic example. Kiara, thank you so much again uh, for being oh. here today. Thank you so much for the space. I really appreciate it. Yeah, the 21 was savage, yeah. Got your magic standing, and you talking, feeling magic. Yeah.